Welcome everyone to episode eight of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Our guests are Patty Mansbach, Darren Monk, and Adam B. And so remember that order, it's arbitrary, but they'll be consistent throughout the game. So going in that order, can you each just briefly state where you're Skyping from in one sentence or so about yourself, starting with Patty? Hi, I'm Skyping from Portland, and I am fighting a really bad acne breakout right now. So I'm going to go just scrub off my face after. This. All right. Well, luckily it's an audio podcast. <laughs> okay. Darren? Hi, I'm Darren Monk. I'm Skyping in from Hillsboro, Oregon, and I love playing trivia and I'm looking forward to this. Adam? Hey, uh, Adam B. I'm Skyping in from Washington, D.C. And yeah, we get some uh, just ate the new Taco Bell party nachos. They're real and they're spectacular. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> All right. Nice that's, a, that's a bold move before a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, oh, gonna eat something. <laughs> All right, power move. So this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. So we'll start with the first round. I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. Three R's also, of course, reflects the ethos of this show, where every week my prep time is reduced, my convoluted writing style gets reused, and this joke is, of course, recycled. So these first round of questions will mostly serve as a warm up. They'll be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreaker. For this round only, you'll each answer its individual. So if the first person's question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, and then the third if both of them miss. So the further back you are in the order, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think, and a few potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to be three times in first position, three times in second position, three times in third. And the rules will change after this round, and I will explain that when that happens. Uh, just a general reminder, the content of the podcast is your thought process, so don't internalize your thoughts feel free to talk through them or you know if you have any interesting connections to the questions or answers you can share but don't just talk for the sake of talking that seems okay fine sure <laughs> is that contrary to your nature yeah I, sometimes i just love the sound of my voice okay well i mean we did get started on time this time so we'll have a little bit more of a buffer in regard to time Oh, cool. As long as you're entertaining. Okay. <laughs> All right. So question one, we'll start with Patty in first position. There's a question. There are only two films with over 200 critics' reviews on Rotten Tomatoes that have managed to maintain a perfect 100% approval rating. One, of course, is Paddington 2. The other is the 2018 drama Leave No Trace, starring Ben Foster as a veteran with PTSD and newcomer Thomason McKenzie as his daughter. So the following year, Thomason McKenzie broke through in 2019 with a role in what Best Picture Oscar nominee? For 2019? Yes, so came out in 2019 for the Oscars that will be held in 2020. Is this a sequel to Leave No Trace? I did not say that. I just said that the same actress appeared in both. I have no idea. I'm taking three. <laughs> All right. Uh, is that the answer you're locking in? Yeah. All right. Darren? This is a terrible category for me, but uh, I do know some of the Best Picture nominees, so I'm going to go ahead and guess Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is, in fact, a Best Picture nominee from the correct year, uh, but not, <laughs> <laughs> not the... So you were a little closer to the mark than Patty there, but um, uh, okay. All right, Adam. I don't know. I've I've never heard of this person or that second movie you mentioned. I've heard of Paddington too. I was trying to think of the Golden Globes stuff I just saw, but I cannot think of a single movie from 2019. Is it the last Star Wars? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I no. I I actually do not know any of the uh, nominees. So yeah. 
I guess let's yeah, let's go with that Star Wars then. Yeah, <laughs> the Last Jedi is that what it's called? I don't know. Uh, that one was actually a few years ago. I think the new one is called The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, Skywalker, right? Yeah, it did come out in 2019. It was not nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So if if you knew that list, you'd have a one in nine shot. But I think Darren mm-hmm. seems the only one familiar with it. The last two episodes, we've had questions about the 2019 film of Little Women, but I did not make it three in a row. This is the other Best Picture nominee from 2019 that has a teenage girl as a major character. It's called Jojo Rabbit. Oh, wow. I've not heard of this. Oh, it's yeah. very controversial. <laughs> it's got a, a guy playing Hitler in it. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Take away, TD. I don't know if you have these out in D.C., but out in Oregon, they have these things called Jojos, where it's just potato wedges. So I was excited <laughs> for a minute, but, uh, <laughs> but it's not about the potato wedges. I don't believe so, no. <laughs> All right. Next one directed first at Darren. So this is kind of a long question, but I'll get to the part I'm asking about at the end. Okay. Oliver Hazard Perry Lafarge II was descended from multiple prominent white East Coast families, but he turned his back on them and settled in New Mexico, becoming an expert on Native Americans of the Southwest and winning a Pulitzer Prize for his 1929 novel, Laughing Boy, a Navajo Love Story. His estranged son, Peter Lafarge, also turned his back on family and became a Greenwich Village folk musician. However, in that curious way men have of simultaneously rejecting and embracing their fathers, he too became obsessed with Native American themes and is today remembered for penning a song called The Ballad of Ira Hayes, which was later covered by Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Chris Christopherson, and many others. So here's the question. The subject of that song, Ira Hayes, was a real-life Pima Native American who is best known for being one of the six men who participated in what historic 1945 event? Uh, is that the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima? Yeah, so Ira Hayes was a member of the Marine Corps, and during the Battle of Iwo Jima on Mount Suribachi, he participated in the famous photograph of the flag raising, which is now iconic. So that is correct. Yay! Nice. Wow. <laughs> All right, next one, starting with Adam. Oh, so tr- Trinidad-born <laughs> C.L.R. James was an influential 20th century post-colonial historian, Marxist political activist, and author of novels and plays. But sports fans remember him pretty much only for his 1963 memoir, Beyond a Boundary, which is a fixture on just about any list of the greatest books about sports. Which sport is it primarily about? Uh, what uh, what name did you say there? C.L.R. James. The title is Beyond a Boundary. Beyond a boundary did he say? yes hmm uh about let's say cricket yeah the the sport popular in the west indies where boundaries are an important part of it and matches are called fixtures is in fact cricket nice one what oh wow <laughs> <laughs> i'll just think of something old-timey you know <laughs> Sounds like it. All right. Good deduction. Uh, next one, starting with Patty. Passionflix is a streaming service and production company dedicated to bringing best-selling romance novels to the screen with their outmoded gender roles and horrible messages intact. Oh, I guess I said that part out loud. Um, <laughs> it is the brainchild of a woman who is a terrible filmmaker, but nonetheless has a thriving career and who just so happens to be the sister of what multi-billionaire entrepreneur? Michael Dell. Incorrect. Darren? Let's see. Multi. Let's go Jeff Bezos. Adam? Oh, boy. What Did you say the name at the beginning or a name? I uh, didn't say any names in the question. Oh, okay. Um, the name is just Passion Flicks. Oh. How about uh, Mark Cuban? All good guesses, but her name is Tosca Musk. She is the sister of oh. Elon Musk. Oh, 
Hmm. That was a good one. Next one directed at Darren first. Francesca Hayward, a principal dancer with the Royal Ballet at Covent Garden, no doubt thought she was about to become a huge star when she landed the beefed-up role of Victoria the White Cat in the 2019 movie musical Cats, although that turned out not to be as great a career move as she may have anticipated. Hayward can at least console herself by noting she adds some much-needed diversity to the world of ballet, as despite being cast as the White Cat, she was born to an African mother in which African country? Okay. Well, I got a one in, what, 30-some chance? <laughs> I think it's more uh, like 50-something. What was her name again? Francesca Hayward. All right. That's not an African-sounding name, so that doesn't really help me. Well... Okay, let's go South Africa then. All right, you get that. that is in fact where Tosca Musk is from, but oh. not, not where Francesca Hayward is from. All right. Uh, Adam? Sounds like maybe like an English name. I'm thinking something like, like a Rhodesia type of thing. Maybe how about Zambia? That was a former British colony, so good guess, but not correct. Patty? Uh, yeah, it, it sounds like it is an English name. I feel like I have to come from like an Anglophone country. Let's try something in West Africa. What about Liberia? Yeah, Liberia was one of the few countries that was, I think along with Ethiopia, wasn't colonized because it was set up as a, a place for freed American slaves. But yeah, her mother is from, and she was born in Kenya. Hmm. You were all, all kind of on the right track there. All right, next one goes to... Adam first. Charles Joseph Bonaparte, whose grandfather Jerome Bonaparte was the youngest brother of Napoleon, Emperor Napoleon I, is credited with founding what still extant law enforcement agency? Let's see. I'm going to say something French. Like, uh, I don't think the Foreign Legion is like law enforcement. Maybe like, uh, is it like gendarmes? Is that a thing? Go with that. I'll put that in there. <laughs> You're locking in gendarmes? Sure. All right. Patty? I mean... I'm going to steal your answer of the, the French Foreign Legion. Yeah. I'm not sure if that count as law enforcement, but all right. Darren? Um, can you give me like the first sentence again? Oh, it's just one sentence. Charles Joseph Bonaparte, whose grandfather, Jerome Bonaparte, was the youngest brother of Emperor Napoleon I, is credited with founding what still extant law enforcement agency? So I'm thinking that this is going to be not French for some reason. So I'm going to go ahead and say the Texas Rangers. Yeah, good deduction there. So Jerome Bonaparte actually, his first marriage was to a Baltimore heiress named Elizabeth Patterson. And this was disliked so much by his brother that he forced him to get it annulled, at which point Elizabeth Patterson returned to Baltimore. But she was already pregnant with Jerome's child and their descendants became fairly prominent in Maryland politics. So Charles Joseph Bonaparte actually became Secretary of the Navy under Teddy Roosevelt. Then during Roosevelt's second term, he became Attorney General, and he founded the Bureau of Investigation, which is today known as the FBI. Huh. Wow. Huh. Napoleon okay. founded the FBI. Isn't that crazy? One of his uh, family members did, yep. Yeah, yeah, so Napoleon did, you know. All right. The next question will go to Patty, and without giving too much away, each of today's contestants submitted something related to popular music for their categories. This is going to be a very pop music heavy game, but we'll get that started in the warm-up round. So here's a question. Rivers Cuomo, Ben Gibbard, Andy Partridge of XTC, Paul Weller of The Jam, and Noel Gallagher all made original songwriting contributions to Good Times, a 2016 album that marked the first reunion in decades for the three then-living members of what band? The album also featured a previously unreleased song penned by Neil Diamond and recorded back in 1969 by the band's fourth founding member. 
so the the band originally had four members, but one of them is dead. So as of 2016, one of them yeah. was dead. So now more have since died. I did not. I, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh God. Oh, I don't know. Journey. All right. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah. Darren. All right. So I don't know this, but I have a couple reasonable guesses. I'm thinking based on the time period and the wording of the question, kind of the implication that somebody subsequently died, that it might be the Bee Gees. But yes, although I believe they notably had three founding members. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, right. because one of them died beforehand. Yeah. They had a brother who recorded separately from them and died, uh-huh. I think, at age 29. Yeah, that's Yeah, what, definitely. That's <laughs> All right. So then Adam is next. Boy, yeah, geez. I wish I could think of something. This is going to be... Oh, man. This is a tough one. Uh, I don't think anyone in Weezer is dead, but that's... I guess I'm, I've got the, this weird hunch for that. I don't know, for some reason. So. Because the very first name I mentioned was Rivers Cuomo. Yeah. Yeah, I just anchored in on that, I guess. Uh, I can't think of anything, any great answers for this. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'll lock in Weezer then. Yeah, I don't know. All right. I thought maybe adding in the bit about Neil Diamond songwriting in the 60s might have drove people a little in the right direction. But in 2016, the three remaining members who got together were Michael Nesmith, Mickey Dolenz, and the late Peter Tork. Oh. Monkeys. A posthumous contribution from Davy Jones, who had passed away. Oh. Over I remember when he died. It was brutal. Yeah. yeah. It's the monkeys. All right. Oh, and you know, Davy Jones, he died on a leap day, February 29th. So there's only so many days, like, it, it doesn't occur the memorial very often. Mm. I don't know, just tidbits. Anyway. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. Uh, all right. So now the last one that Darren will have in first position. A folk story about rural smugglers hiding contraband French brandy in a pond, not a work featuring James Bond, is believed to be the source of what colloquial demonym applied to the people of Wiltshire in England. <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, repeat that one more time, please. Yeah. A folk story about rural smugglers hiding contraband French brandy in a pond, not a work featuring James Bond, is believed to be the source of what colloquial demonym applied to the people of Wiltshire in England. All right, so James Bond seems like the way in here. And then getting back to something that would have to do with rural smugglers hiding liquor in a pond in France. I was hoping this was going to be something about bootlegging, but that's not French and does not have a James Bond connection. Um, I mean, James Bond did have legs, so. (laughs) And he may have worn boots at one, one point. True. I mean, I could sit here and try and name off James Bond movies, but then that might help my opponents and probably doesn't make for great radio. Let's go with... Sorry, what was the name of the the town again? It's a county, the county of Wiltshire. W-I-L-T-S-H-I-R-E. I mean, I can't think of anything that goes with that, you know, because usually demonyms are kind of variations on the place name but it could be something weird like you know people from there are certain demonyms that don't really go with the place name let's go with moonrakers so the story yeah that they were basically being approached by authorities they they engaged in the time-honored tactic of playing dumb and claimed that instead of trying to scrape the contraband off of the bottom pond they were just trying to rake the surface of it in order to capture the <laughs> that was reflected in it. So of course, to this day, they are known as spies who loved me. Uh, oh, wait, no. <laughs> Doctors, no. 
The golden uh, fingerists. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Yeah. Okay. They I'll are known as uh, moonrakers, yes. Alright, and the last question of this round, everyone should have a 1 in 30 shot, even with no knowledge. So this will start with Adam. As a result of the December 2019 merger of SunTrust Banks and BB&T, which baseball team's home stadium is now known as Truist Park? Oh boy. It's embarrassing. I don't know. Let's go with the Baltimore Orioles. All right. Good guess. I think they're Camden Yards at Oriole Park. Oh, then, right. Yeah. 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 Patty? So when I think of SunTrust, I feel like it would be something in like the Southwest or something like that. I think Arizona has a baseball team. Is it? Are they called the Diamondbacks? They are called the Diamondbacks. Okay. That- I'm going to guess the Arizona Diamondbacks. All right. Uh, good guess. I see your logic there, but not correct. Darren? So yeah, this they built a stadium out in the suburbs of Cobb County, far away from where you know people actually want to go. They also just recently hired a friend of mine, so this is really fresh in my mind. It's the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. BB&T, or SunTrust was the namesake of their stadium. BB&T was the namesake of, I believe, the Florida Panthers Arena, and they're now either have been or will soon be renamed for the merged company, which is called Truist. So yes, it's the Atlanta Braves. So at the end of this round, I believe we have a score of Patty 0.0, Darren 0.3, and Adam 0.1. One. This is only a warm-up? Yep. <laughs> oh, man, we're going to have a fun trivia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now going into the main game, uh, the rules are going to be a bit different. And we'll start with the first main round, which I call the not-all-that-hard round. So in this round, in all these successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. And again, the standard caveat, not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them, merely directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the category, at least not until they become evident. So for these questions, before you can answer your specialist question, your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if they miss. Sometimes to build suspense or whatever, I might not say right away whether the answer is right and just pass it over to you, in which case it's in your interest to assume that they got it wrong. If you just give the same answer as them, you're not going to get any points whether they got it right or not. And as in previous episodes, there are going to be some bonuses sprinkled in quasi-random these are basically extra questions for those who get stolen from. So far, they haven't shifted the outcome of any game, but they give people who get stolen from a chance to show off a bit of knowledge and give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. Again, the bonuses will be attached to some, but not all questions. There's no real pattern to it. They will relate to the question. They won't always be in the same category or at the same level of difficulty. And since these questions are not all that hard, we'll start off with two points for a steal, one for a specialist, one for a bonus. And for the entire game, when points are stolen, and the points will go in full to both stealers, even if only one of them knows the answer. So, yeah, a bit of luck in there that'll shape the outcome. It's not always just whoever knows the most will get the most points. All right, so the first question will be directed first at Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. All right. All right. So you'll get to to work together and you can confer out loud on this. So I'll be a little lenient in terms of what I accept, but try to come reasonably close to filling in the two-word phrase that I've redacted twice from this excerpt from a 2006 retrospective in The Guardian. So there's four blanks, but it's just a two-word phrase repeated twice. Okay. 
So here's the excerpt. On a Sunday evening in March, 40 years ago, David Corbett left his ground floor flat in Norwood, South London, to make a telephone call from the kiosk across the road. With the Thames lighter man was Pickles, the four-year-old mongrel he had taken off his brother John's hands when he was a puppy because he chewed furniture. I put the lead on Pickles and he went over to the neighbor's car, recalls Corbett, now 66. Pickles drew my attention to a package lightly bounded newspaper lying by the front wheel. I picked it up and tore some paper and saw a woman holding a dish over her head and discs with the words Germany, Uruguay, Brazil. I rushed inside to my wife. She was one of those anti-sport wives. But I said, I found the blank blank. I found the blank blank. Okay, so 1966... So if this was written in 2006 and it was about 40 years ago, this yeah. guy's running a story from 1966, which is the England won the World Cup in 1966. Oh, okay. And so I believe those other teams were also in the World Cup that year, potentially. Oh. But then I also, like, I don't know. I mean, he didn't find the World Cup and they're talking about a woman holding a dish above her head with those names i've found so he's walking his dog the dog picks up a piece of paper he rips a piece of paper off this package or is it like yeah it's like a stack of newspapers i think and like rips off maybe the front page or something and there's you know like in the sports section i'm assuming so it says the package was bound in newspaper oh it was bound in newspaper bound in newspaper so it's a thing that's bound in newspaper but it's important it's so maybe he did. I'm thinking that he did find the World Cup. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me, given the time and place and that it's two words. That's you a know. crazy story. Yeah, I like it. Like maybe the players were out partying after they won and, you know, misplaced it or something. I mean, uh, that's the only thing that makes sense. You know, it's an improbable story, but <laughs> yeah. what can you say? All right. You want to lock it in? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. All right. Uh, so World Cup. Locking in World Cup, yeah. So in 1966, shortly before England was to host the World Cup, the Jules Rimet trophy was stolen and uh, attempted to be held for ransom, but it was recovered when a man was randomly walking his dog and came across it. So though technically the trophy was called the Jules Rimet trophy, colloquially, of course, he would refer to it as the World Cup. There you go. Wow, I did not know that at all. Yeah, I've never heard that story. That's crazy. I just made a guess based on the date. Cool. All right. So the next one goes to Patty and Adam trying to steal from Darren. The video for Suffocate Me by the Scottish band Angelfish famously aired only once on MTV, but it was seen by Steve Marker, who was so taken with the band's lead singer that he invited her to Madison, Wisconsin to audition for his band. The resulting collaboration culminated in a 1995 album that went double platinum in the US, UK, and Canada, and spawned five singles including Vow, Queer, and Milk. Name the singer. So Steve Marker found this girl in 1995 and they made a bunch of singles? Well, they made an album. I mean, an album. At, at least one album, one famous one that released five singles. And I listed the three, probably the three least famous of those. Mm. And she was an abandoned Scotland, did you say? Or Yes. That's kind of so right. who was that girl in Garbage then? Yeah, I was also thinking that for some reason. I think her name is Shirley. 
I have no idea. Ah, yeah, I don't know. Um, and would they be from Madison? I mean, it's, it's right about the right time period. Right. Uh, um, it's not Gwen Stefani. No. <laughs> um, Are we allowed uh, to answer that girl from Garbage? Is that an uh, acceptable oh, answer? Yeah, I mean, is... you can say it, but yeah, generally for real people, you need it at minimum my last name. Ah. Uh, it's not the lady from the Cranberries. She's <laughs> dead now, right? Yeah. Um, oh, boy. We might be... Okay, let me see if I can okay. dig deep and get the garbage. Yeah. What is that name? Boy, I feel like... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You want to try uh, saying your first name and see if that jogs your memory? Sure. Yeah. I'll take that. I know. I'm saying, Doug, if you have any ideas about what it is. Oh, like, did you say, like, Sherilyn or something? I think it's, like, Shirley. Shirley? Oh, Shirley. Uh, not Shirley Jackson. Oh, my God. No, I guess I don't... I don't even know if Shirley's correct, though. Yeah. Boy, that rings some bells, but, yeah, I don't... What's, like, a Scottish I... last name? Like, McLeod or, like, McLean oh, yeah. or... Mm-hmm. Um... You think it's Shirley McLean? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it was one of her past lives. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That would be an amazing trivia question. <laughs> Uh, it's I got nothing, and I can't even think of any other bands that it could yeah. possibly be really. So uh, that girl from Garbage, Shirley McLean. Shirley right. McLean, yeah. All right, locking that in. Yep. Yep. Darren. Uh, yeah. So you guys were right on it. Um, oh. so if I said mass murderer Charles, oh. Oh. yeah. Butch Vig, who would later go on to, I believe, produce Nirvana's Nevermind. He was kind of the, the driving force behind Garbage, and he is based out of Madison. So yeah, oh. Shirley Manson. Oh, we were close. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you were close. And yes, uh, yeah, Suffocate Me was actually produced by Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, who mm-hmm. were simultaneously in one of the best bands of its, ti- of its kind, Talking Heads, and in one of the worst bands of its kind, Tom Tom Club. Uh, I have some friends. I don't know about that. that. What? Yeah. Maybe Tom Tom Club feels proud of their work. They're <laughs> <a> fantasy. <laughs> Right, the next one goes to Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. Okay. While attending Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey in the late 1960s, early 70s, future Hollywood mega producer Joel Silver helped write the official rule book that codified the rules of which sport. Uh, extra hint, thanks to a campaign initiated by current Montpelier Mayor Ann Watson in 2017, Vermont officials voted to grant this sport full varsity status in high schools. So... My dad went to Columbia High School. That's not related at all. Anyway, um, what year was this again? Did he know Joel Silver? I couldn't find an exact date. I, I think based on ages, I narrowed it down to late 60s, early 70s. Okay. So it would have to be a, a more modern sport that wasn't like way back when. I mean, yeah. like lacrosse it, or something or something a little bit more recent. Yeah, but lacrosse is actually like a really old sport. It was invented by Native Americans. Oh, uh, okay. Like I don't I know when the, I don't know when the rules were codified, but I think it was before the 70s because I know mm-hmm. they played it in the Northeast for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's going to be something like I almost want to say something like disc golf or something because I know that like frisbees were invented maybe in like, What about what about ultimate frisbee yeah that's another i mean i'm thinking something along the like ultimate frisbee might actually be a better better because it has to be like a varsity team and i don't really know if like schools are gonna have like a disc golf varsity team but i feel like they might have an ultimate frisbee team yeah and it's easier and that is totally like a thing for hippie vermont to be into like 
Oh, or is it hacky sack? That can't oh. be. That can't be a bar. Like that's not even a. I mean, you can't really compete at that, right? I mean, I'm sure you could, but uh, in terms of like varsity, I, I feel like yeah. you can't be like a hacky sack coach or something. Right, like that. and like I don't even know how you would keep score. So right. Yeah, I like ultimate frisbee. Okay. In, in lack of a better guess. <laughs> yeah, that's all we have. That's all I got. So I'm gonna guess ultimate frisbee. All right, I'm good. Let's do ultimate frisbee. All right, they're locking in ultimate frisbee. Yes. All right. So, uh, Adam, you did a good job of keeping a poker face during yeah, that. Yeah, boy, I was trying really oh, hard. Did he mention it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Ultimate Frisbee, yeah. High school students in New Jersey in the 70s. Huh. All right. Darren's answered everything correctly so far, so uh, kind of pulling right. out ahead. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, so it's not, not, a, not something to be ashamed of. <laughs> but, all right. So next one goes to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. Okay. Uh, going back to the pop music well, Portishead recorded a cover of which ABBA song for the soundtrack of the 2015 J.G. Ballard adaptation, High Rise? They later released a video for it in June 2016 as a tribute to assassinated British member of parliament, Joe Cox. Oh, and it shares its name with the second single from the 2007 album, Jonas Brothers by the Jonas Brothers. Oh, boy. Hmm. Who is the person who died? Joe Cox. Oh, first, okay. Yeah, first sitting member of parliament to be assassinated in quite some time. Dancing Queen would be weird for that. Yeah, know. that would be wildly inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be a sadder one than maybe. So the one that immediately popped into my mind that would have a British connection would be Waterloo. Waterloo. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that literally that's just because you know the the British fought the Battle of Waterloo and they have a Duke of Waterloo and um, yeah. Well, but maybe a more down tempo uh, version, and maybe yeah, represent. I mean, it's Portishead, so I'm assuming it's going to be down tempo no matter what. Um, yeah. Where is one? What, what are some other ABBA songs? There's, you know, Fernando. There's. Mm-hmm. Um, take a chance. Take a chance. I mean, there's like a million, but it'd be great if I could think of some of them. And there's that Kinks song, Waterloo Sunset. And I think it's yeah. like a like a London tube station. Yeah, I, I mean maybe that's like where the guy was assassinated or something. Oh, no. That would that would be bad. But that's taste. like a little morbid, right? Yeah. No, maybe I think he must be from there or something like that. Yeah. Um yeah, that I mean that sounds great. Yeah, I mean let's I I think that's as good a guess as any. Yeah. All right, Waterloo. Yeah, jo- Joe Cox, by the way, was a woman. Ah, but um, yeah, I, I don't think that the Jonas Brothers have a single called Waterloo. Yeah. Patty. So the only song that I know that the Jonas Brothers share a title with ABBA, I think, is SOS. So mm-hmm. I'm going to guess SOS. That being said, you said it was their second single. I always thought the SOS was their first single. So Yogesh, do you know the first single from that album? This uh, is totally a tangent. Anyway, my guess but, is SOS. <laughs> I mean, either way, it was their second album. They didn't gain the confidence to name an album oh, after. Oh, you said second album. Okay. Yeah, but you can probably answer that question. Actually, the first single from that album. Oh, wait. Huh. Oh, I guess. Sorry. SOS is actually the third single. You're. You're. Uh. You're both wrong about that. The oh. first was called Year Three Thousand, and the oh. second. Okay, yeah. That's because they didn't write that, but Okay. Well but anyway, um anyway. <laughs> yeah. yes, you're you're correct with SOS. Okay, right. thank you. 
Nice. Good. I was never getting that as an Amazon <laughs> or a Joe. Wow. Yeah. Let's just go to the next question, which will go first to Patty and Adam trying to steal from Darren. Okay. Okay. So this again a variation on those uh, solve for x questions used before. This is a solve for x and y. So I've replaced two words or phrases with x and y, and you have to identify what they are. So this is from a 2013 New York Times Magazine long form profile of a man named Jason Everman, which was written by Clay Tarver and entitled The Rock and Roll Casualty Who Became a War Hero. And it begins with this paragraph. Jason Everman has the unique distinction of being the guy who was kicked out of X and Y, two rock bands that would sell roughly 100 million records combined. At 26, he wasn't just Pete Best, the guy the Beatles left behind. He was Pete Best twice. Then again, he wasn't remotely. What Everman did afterwards put him far outside the category of rock and roll footnote. He became an elite member of the U.S. Army Special Forces, one of those bearded guys riding around on horseback in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban. So here's the question. Which two Seattle area bands that peaked in the 1990s were X and Y in that paragraph? So Seattle area. I mean, the first thing I think is obviously Nirvana and then also maybe Alice in Chains. Wow. Is, um... Pearl Jam from Seattle, maybe? Or Presidents of the United States of America? I think uh, too few no, I members. Don't know if, yeah, because I think Nirvana was actually more from Olympia. So I don't know how far the idea yeah. of Seattle is, is stretching. But... Aberdeen, maybe? Something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah, farther west. Yeah. Hmm. Alice in Chains. And what was the first one you said? I said Nirvana and Alice in Chains. But I don't know if Pearl Jam is, is from the Seattle area as well. Yeah, I don't know either. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I'm defining Seattle area pretty broadly. Pretty much anything okay. from, like, northwestern part of Washington. Okay. All right. Uh, I, so I think Nirvana sounds like a pretty good guess. Okay. And then maybe somebody else in that. Maybe, oh, what if it's uh, Pole, uh, Corny Lowe's band? What are they from the Seattle area, though? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, good question. <laughs> Let's see. What else? It's got to be, I feel like it's got to be bands that kind of know each other maybe somehow, or... Yeah, so then Hole would know each other then. As some kind of split off, or I don't know, maybe it's a small music scene, but um, <laughs> but they also have to sell a ton of albums, so yeah. which Alice in Chains would, uh, I think, fit. Yeah, let's go through maybe your first two there. Sounds good. I don't know. Okay, I don't know about that, but <laughs> all right. I don't think we have many, many other guesses. So I, I guess, can we guess uh, Nirvana? Nirvana and Alice in Chains. All right, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. All right, I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Darren. All right, so those are, I mean, I have no good idea on this, and I sw- oh. I'm pretty sure I've read this article. So before Yagesh said anything about Seattle, the first thing that popped into my head was Nirvana. But, I mean, all those grunge-era bands mm-hmm. kind of, like, I know how they're all connected. So, like, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, members of those two bands, combined in Temple of the Dog, which was an album that was like a tribute to, I forget the guy's name, um, from Mother Love Bone, which was like the predecessor band of Pearl Jam. I'm going to say... Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, because I know they're related. All right, so you said uh, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. You said Pearl Garden, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. So those were basically, yeah, like the four tightly linked Seattle grunge bands of that era. And the two we were looking for here were Nirvana and Soundgarden. Oh. Uh, so, you know, can you split the difference between us? Right. <laughs> 
And Clay Tarver, who wrote that, is a fairly well-regarded musician in the kind of rock metal scene with bands like Bullet LaVolt and Chavez, but he's actually current, or until recently, the showrunner of Silicon Valley for some reason. Uh. All right, so next one, second of three consecutive pop music questions. We'll go to Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. Originally a 1930s jazz standard that can be heard in orchestral form over the opening credits of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, what song took on a whole new life in the 1960s thanks to a soulful reinterpretation, courtesy of the house band at Stax Records? Depending on your age and demographic, you might associate it more with either John Cryer, The Commitments, or Jay-Z and Kanye West. Wow. So, I feel like the house band at—I feel like this— you said it's a jazz standard? It started off basically as kind of like a jazzy type standard, yeah. Okay. So I know Booker T and the MGs were involved with Stax Records in the 60s, and I kind of think that they might have been like the backing band there. So I'm wondering if this is like an instrumental that then has been sampled by those other bands. Okay. Which like the most famous Booker T and the MGs instrumental I think is Green Onions. That's about all I've got. Who did you say the modern artists were? I just said it might be associated okay. with John Cryer, The Commitments, or Jay-Z and Kanye West. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, go ahead. Did Jay-Z, they, Jay-Z and Kanye West, I know they collaborated on at least one song. Are there any other songs that they would have collaborated on together? Well, I think they had like a whole album or tour called Watch the Throne. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know if there's an album. I know it was a tour. But I think they, I mean, obviously, like you said, they collaborated. What was the song you were thinking of? Oh, it has the end word. We're not going to say that. So So John Cryer, not a musician. So what are some famous roles? Like John Cryer was on Two and a Half Men. Was he in like the Brat Pack films as well? No, he was, he kind of, he was in, oh, like Summer School or something. No, that was uh, Mark Harmon. But he was in some movie, I think, where he was like a school kid, like a comedy in the... Mm-hmm. It, it's the right era. Like he was kind of, I think, mid to late 80s was when mm-hmm. he first came on the scene. But I'm just trying to like... <sighs> and you had mentioned, you guess, it was in a Stanley Kubrick film as well? Yeah, before okay. uh, it got reinterpreted in more kind of a soul song. As in, in orchestral form, it, it is in fact playing over the opening credits of Dr. Strangelove. Okay. A refueling scene in midair. I mean, I'm just trying to think of, like, jazz standards. So, like, I mean, there's Take the A-Train, I'll Be Seeing You. Um, yeah, I think those are all later, because he said the 30s. Like, the, I yeah. mean, and he also said jazzy, not, he specifically kind of corrected me when I said jazz mm-hmm. standard. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it's not going to be, like, a, something that we obviously know as a jazz standard. Yeah. But God help me if I could actually figure out what it is. Yeah, I know there's a way into this. Like, mm-hmm. I think this is a well-written question, but I just can't get there. All right. So you had mentioned Green Onion? Yeah, I mean, okay. let's go with that. I don't think okay. it's going to be right based on I don't, the John Cryer. Yeah, I don't really have much of much I mean, yeah. to use either. All right, let's say Green Onions. All right, you're liking Green Onions? All right, Adam? Boy, yeah, that, I mean, that all sounds great. And I also have no idea. I feel like it's got to be sampled, yeah. I don't know who are the commitments. It's also I don't know. Um, how about Gold Digger? Is that a song previously exists? Um, I'll lock that in. Yeah. 
Let's go with that. So the name that I did not say in the question that might have provided a much quicker way in is first name is actually the name of the track from Watch the Throne that heavily samples this song. Also uh, discussed in The Commitments, which is an early 90s movie about an an Irish rock band heavily influenced by American soul music Mm -hmm. and lip sync to in a very memorable scene. So so you are right, Patty. John Cryer was in, you know, at least one notable Brat Pack movie, Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, in that famously lip synced to Otis Redding's recording of Try a Little Tenderness. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was still never getting to that, so. Yeah. Okay, so next one goes to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. And this is going to be the third straight pop music question. What is the title of the Irving Berlin song? It hit as part of the Ziegfeld Follies of 1919 that later appeared in many other films like 1934's Kid Millions, 1943's This is the Army, 1954's White Christmas, that shares its name with both the first single ever released by the Jonas Brothers and also a 1974 number one hit that was originated by an artist named Scott English under a slightly different title. And in addition to those three different songs, I'll give you one more hint. This title is also the title of a 2018 supernatural thriller starring Nicolas Cage, and the title in that film refers to his character wife oh boy do you know this i haven't heard the heard of this movie this sounds good no, no i mean nicholas cage has not really been on my radar for a while other than in meme form or you know the bees or something like that <laughs> about the wicker ma'am <laughs> <laughs> Man, oh boy, this Joe is Bro. so fun. She's going to get it immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily. Knows it. Look at it. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, Jonas Brothers. I don't know any Jonas Brothers. So, but it's, a title. it's also the title. Let's try with the Irving Berlin angle. Yeah, yeah, there we I go. I mean, he released like a lot of famous standards. Obviously, it's not going to be White Christmas, even though White it Christmas. appeared in the movie White Christmas. Right. And it refers to a woman in a supernatural thriller, maybe one of the main characters wives i guess or wife um yeah i mean it could just be a woman's name or something Uh uh-huh or it could be some oblique reference that could apply to a a wife that may not even necessarily obviously have to do with a wife did you say it was the name of the movie uh, yogish yep oh okay the title of those three songs is also the title of that movie wow do you think it's a maybe a christmas thing is it christmas carol or he writes songs in the arm it was in your in the arm oh yeah oh and what Mm -hmm. else i mean what were the other early movies 1934 kid millions 1943 this is the army and 1954 the bing crosby white christmas Mm. yeah i mean she's a grand old flag That's gotta be yeah, the older. Jonas Brothers song. She's a grand old flag. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, man. Yeah, I got nothing on this. Again, it feels like there's got a there should be a way in, but it's not a way that I'm finding. Maybe lady something, Mrs. Um, nope, I got nothing. Yeah, yeah. and That's the main. Totally yeah. Yeah. What was that the date of that first movie you said? So the original song was written around 1919 for the Ziegfeld Follies. First movie oh. I mentioned, Kid Millions, is 1934. 
So it had a long life. Got to be about a woman, I think. But who? Yeah, I got. Right, I got nothing. Yeah, Mamie. <laughs> Is that what you're locking in? Sure. Sure. Patty. So I, first of all, I just want to say how much joy it brings me to know that Yogesh, as a grown man, had to research Jonas Brothers songs. You <laughs> um, said it was their first signal, and it would have to be a name of a, another person as well. I'm not particularly up to speed on any like Irving Berlin songs. The only song of, I can think of of the Jonas Brothers that would also be a name of a person would be Mandy. So I'm going to guess Mandy. Huh? Yeah, so the um, 1974 number one hit, none of you went in on it, was originally by Scott English recorded as Brandy, but due to uh, similarity... Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. It was renamed for Barry Manilow, Mandy. Also the Nicolas Cage movie, the Irving Berlin song, and the Jonas Brothers song. Nice. If you had said Barry Manilow... Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised you didn't just put as Barry Manilow, but... Well, this is see, not all that hard round, not the easy round. Yeah. Okay. There isn't really any easy round on this podcast. <laughs> all right, so Patty and Adam now trying to steal from Darren. Okay. Now, we're temporarily off of pop music. We'll come back. To it later. Okay. <laughs> Although it was temporarily displaced in the 1960s and 70s by a mule named Charlie O in honor of then owner Chuck Finley, what type of animal has long represented the Oakland Athletics baseball team, including through its current mascot, Stomper? The connection originates in a derogatory comment made in 1902 by John McGraw, manager of the rival New York Giants, when he stated that the A's franchise was an expensive liability. Hmm. Stomper. An expensive liability. Liability sounds like a like a white elephant. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking as well. Wait, but do you think a, a team would have elephant as their mascot? This was so crazy. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, and now it's a mule or something, or uh, a mule was a thing at one point. So which makes you think maybe it's a donkey or something. It maybe uh, Oakland A's or the Oakland asses or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but expensive liability. Are donkeys expensive? No, I would not associate that or even a mule being expensive um liability you mentioned a few of the names Uh, one is stomper is there you mentioned another mascot name i mean not this kind i mentioned that the mule was called charlie o but that's not really relevant to the answer i feel like donkey is too close to mule to be an applicable answer Mm -hmm. because i kind of feel like they're almost the same what's special about a donkey that makes it oh this is a great question I feel like there's <laughs> like a riddle uh, and a few clues. Oh, jeez. Mm, those party nachos are holding me back. <laughs> 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 no, it's uh, I wouldn't have any idea. I, and even coming up with a good guess is maybe it's like uh, some kind of cool like uh, white tiger or something. You know? I don't know. Maybe like a parakeet or what, what is a mule thinking? Maybe like a bull in a china shop is kind of that's not really what you would associate like a underperforming baseball team. Not really wrecking things, just kind of underperforming or not yeah. doing anything to do. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I am. Maybe it's like a really sad looking horse. Maybe a race horse that just can't run. Or, I don't know. This is so different. But. <laughs> a sad horse? Yeah. What's a, a sad baseball team? I don't know. I'm totally stumped. I like elephant. Yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. So which one are you locking in? Let's lock it in. Why okay, elephant. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you um you kind of landed on exactly the right logic in your first few yeah. sentences when you said an yeah. expensive <laughs> ability is called a white elephant. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what McGraw referred to it as. And yeah. 
past. There's some belief that when the team was in Kansas City, it moved to the mule to attempt to get the symbolism away from the Republican Party to the Democratic uh, hey. one. But um, yeah, Did by the right? yeah. it was established Stomper the Elephant. Oh, the nice. elephant! Yay! <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah, you guys nailed it immediately, and then I was like, "Are they going to get back to it?" Because <laughs> totally resigned, and you were just going to guess something. And I'm like, "Just go back to what your first." <laughs> yeah. Good job. Wow, the donkey connection. I didn't see the like. I it oh, occurred to me that it might be political I somehow. Guess elephant donkey. Okay. Yeah, they even have at least at one point they had like alternate hats with an elephant on it and stuff. Wow. All right. So, so I'm kind of glad about. Because this bonus for Darren, this is going to be for Darren only. It's pretty interesting, I think. So when Chuck Finley was the owner of the Athletics, he made a number of dubious innovations. He tried introducing a designated runner. One of the more notorious ones, he hired teenage ball girls, one of whom was named Debbie Sevier, to run around in tight shirts and hot pants. Practice reportedly ended due to complaints from players' wives. He also hired a charismatic black teenager named Stanley Burrell, who he saw in the parking lot, made him his personal assistant assistant with the title of executive vice president. Now, I mentioned this because both Debbie Sevier and Stanley Burrell independently went on to be successful in careers completely unrelated to baseball and under different names. So give either of the names by which either of them is best known today. Can I give them both? Sure. Wow. So Debbie, I believe her married last name is Fields, and she went into the cookie business as Mrs. Fields. And then Stanley Burrell was nicknamed Hammer because of his resemblance to Hammer and Hank Aaron. So he then began a rap career as MC Hammer. That is so crazy. I, I would have never gotten that. It sounds like a joke, but it must be true. Yeah, that was all the supplementary information that I was going to give. So you took care of that as well. <laughs> so everyone gets points on that. Two for Patty and Adam and one for Darren. And now the last of the not all that hard questions goes to Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. So in between her supporting role on the Nickelodeon sitcom 100 Deeds for Eddie McDowd and her current solo career under the moniker White Sea, Morgan Kibbe was a de facto member of what group or band when it recorded the albums Saturdays Equals Youth and Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. This group, now essentially a one-man project for Anthony Gonzalez takes its name from the Messier catalog designation for the Southern Pinwheel Galaxy. What? <laughs> so it's a band that's not always a band, so it's kind of like a Nine Inch Nails situation that could okay. also plausibly name a galaxy. Are there any other bands of that nature? I mean, the only other one I could think of is the Mountain Goats, which I don't think is correct at all, but like it's more of just like a vehicle for the lead person. Uh yeah. I mean, I the name definitely doesn't ring a bell. What was the astronomy part again? So it takes its name from the Messier catalog designation for the Southern Pinwheel Galaxy. Mm, so those are like, I think those are like alphanumeric type things. Like, it's not necessarily like a name. It's like oh, S. Okay. 550 yeah. or like i mean s club 7 i don't know 3 311 is a band yeah but that's yeah i don't think that's it no because that's an actual band band oh right with peanut and whoever the hell else is in it yeah i mean the what's the first part of the question again sorry there's so a lot, lot of pieces to this basically saying morgan kibbe who now performs as a solo artist as white c was a de facto member of this group when it recorded the album saturdays equals youth and hurry up we're dreaming 
Hurry up, we're dreaming. Like, rings some sort of bell, but I have no idea. Ace of base? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, S Club 7 is not right, but, like, that's at least, like, a kid's-type band. But, yeah, I mean, that's not... They're not around anymore, though. Well, maybe they are, and it's just one guy. Oh, (laughs) just one guy of S Club I don't think so. Yeah, I... Man, this is, I'm going to smack my forehead when I hear this one. Well, what about Nine Inch Nails? Yeah, it's a, that's Trent Reznor. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. You want to just pass? I don't think, I can't even come up with a good guess. I'm trying to... Like you said, if, if it is an alphanumeric thing, you could just put a random letter and a random number together. Okay. Hmm. You too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a random letter and a random number. Yep. That's and right. it's a one-man band with Bono, so sure. you too. Oh, the, ed- the Edge will Oh. I was going to say, it's very much not a one-man band. But, uh, all right, I think I'll have to take that as an answer. And yeah. pass okay. it all right, pass it over to Adam. Wait, I don't know either, but I guess I can kind of get some guesses. The one that kind of springs to mind is like, there's, I want to say like M83 or something. Maybe did like Midnight City or something. But I thought there was two guys. And I thought that was like a road. I do feel like the Messier thing is like an M and then a number. But that's as good as I can get, I think. Did you say the artist was in White City? Or what's the name? Or White Sea? Yeah, so I don't know if she was ever a permanent member, but not involved now. Right now, there's only one permanent member. I see. I guess I'm going to go with that M83. Sounds kind of familiar somehow. I'll lock that in, yeah. All right, lock in M83. Yeah, so the Messier catalog, the first item in it, I think, is the Crab Nebula, which is M1. They're all M numbers. And Hurry Up, We're Dreaming did have one of my favorite songs from the past decade on it, Midnight City. It is by M83. Nice. Wow. I have never heard of that, so I was not going to get that as a guess. I might have gotten to like UB40 or something. All right, so we're actually at the end of this round. We're tightly packed. Patty, 6.0. Darren, 6.3. Adam, 5.1. Tiebreakers are coming in handy. Yep. All right, let's keep marching now. The next round is called the only somewhat hard round. The questions will be a step up in difficulty, so they'll be worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist, and two points as a bonus. And the first one will go to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. So listen carefully to this entire question. The 1937 Nancy Drew mystery, The Whispering Statue, introduced what canine companion of Nancy Drew, named for the lead sled dog who heroically covered 260 miles during the famous 1925 serum run to Nome. That dog was in turn named for a Japanese admiral, not a country in West Africa. I just saw this and it was crazy. Oh my god. So West African countries. Yeah. A lot of them. Sound like a, a Japanese general. Yeah. It's like, oh, to- oh Togo? That's it. That's gotta be it. Let's yeah. check some. I mean, there's Togo, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, you got Senegal, you got Gambia, you got Nigeria, Guinea, Bissau. Yeah, I mean, I Togo. like Togo. Yeah. All right, Togo. Patty, you might need to work on your poker face there. You give a very visible reaction. Oh, oh I did? Oh, I thought it was Molly, it was... so I thought, yeah. It's funny, oh. I always look at the person I'm conferring with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just like, oh, that's a really good guess. I was going to guess Molly, but I think Togo might actually be correct. Yeah, so I, I, I thought people, up until fairly recently, everyone associated the serum run with Balto, who was actually yeah. the lead dog when they arrived in Nome and so got a disproportionate share of the credit. But the most ground-covered and 
the most dangerous part of the route was actually covered by Leonard Sapala and his dog Togo, oh, nice. who mostly unknown outside from Nancy Drew fans until Disney Plus put out a movie about him just a few months ago with I think Willem Dafoe as Sapala. So your bonus, Patty, the 1925 Serum Run or Great Race of Mercy carried the antitoxin to fight an epidemic of what disease in Nome? Nowadays, this disease is usually prevented by the DPT vaccine. Uh, West Nile virus? Is that what you're locking in? Yes. So DPT as uh, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and yeah, it was diphtheria. Whatever. (laughs) All right. So next question goes to Patty and Adam. Between 2004 and 2008, the home stadium of the San Francisco 49ers, which had once been called Candlestick Park, carried what name? It got that name not because it housed scary creatures, but due to sponsorship from the audiovisual equipment company that originated the Beats by Dre line of headphones that's currently owned by Apple. Oh, um, Monster is the name of, like, audio equipment? Can be, like, Monster Park, though. Maybe. Well, Monster's also an energy drink, and I feel like they might maybe sponsor, like, high-throttle sports kind of stuff. It's the football stadium. Man, that's killing me. Because when is it? Oh, (laughs) uh, huh. Okay, what are some other audio equipment things that sounds like scary animals? I mean, I'm just going to name scary animals, like centipede, spider. Uh, A spider, is that a? No. It's by Dre. (laughs) Sony Candlestick Park. Wow, this is frustrating because I feel like we're close. (laughs) Slug? No, they wouldn't call it a slug park. They're tired. Well, a lot of them are already other teams. A lot of scary animals are already other football teams. Let's see. I got nothing. I feel like the only thing I can think of is that monster thing, but that's not really an animal in particular. The only animal I would think of that's, like, scary is is a spider. Mm, Wasn't wasn't it, like, Levi something park or something? No, maybe that's another Bay Area stadium or something. I don't know. I am, like, so stumped. I feel like there's something, some other part of the question i just uh, forgetting, or are there any other clues you can remember? Or, or you just kind of... No, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Why the 49ers? Mm. Any other, like, audio companies you could think of? I mean, like, Skull Candy used to be a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Bose, maybe? And maybe oh. it's maybe a little bit of a tech connection somehow, too. Maybe, like, some kind of Silicon Valley. Um... Wow, I am so stumped. Anything? Just want to take a guess? Um, scary animals. What, what would, like, maybe a collection of scary animals? Critter? Mm, I am totally stumped, yeah. <laughs> what do you think as a guess? I, I'm still, I'm just going to guess spider. Okay, all right. Spider sounds fine, yeah. You're locking in spider? Mm-hmm. All right. Sure. Darren? So, once again, you guys had the answer in, like, the first oh, sentence. Oh, no. What did I say? Monster? It's monster, yeah. I don't think what? you ever said anything about animals. Um, oh, yeah. oh, I said scary creatures. Yeah. Oh, scary creatures. Uh, yeah. So, it was the first naming rights after Candlestick. It was Recom Park which mm-hmm. is the sexy business of routers and stuff. Uh-huh. And so then they got something a little more exciting with Monster. Cool. And you were right. They, the 49ers now play in Levi's Stadium, which is in Santa Clara. Okay. Mm-hmm. Candlestick Park used to be, for much of the 20th century, the San Francisco Giants, but they had moved out of it by the time it became Monster Park. Okay. All right. So now Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. Okay. So consider the following paragraph from a certain woman's Wikipedia page from which I've redacted her name and replaced it with X. 
Index. Her periodically harsh reviews of some prominent authors have garnered both attention and, on occasion, criticism. For example, in 2006, X called Jonathan Franzen's The Discomfort Zone, quote, an odious self-portrait of the artist as a young jackass, end quote. Franzen reportedly subsequently called X, quote, the stupidest person in New York City, end quote. Another example is that in 2012, X wrote a negative review of Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile. In 2018, Taleb stated in his book Skin in the Game that, quote, someone has to have read the book to notice that a reviewer is full of baloney. So in the absence of Skin in the Game, reviewers such as X, end quote, can, quote, go on forever without anyone knowing, end quote, that they are fabricating and drunk. According to Kira Cochran in The Guardian, such counterattacks may have bolstered X's reputation as commendably, quote-unquote, fearless. So I'm going to ask you to identify the woman whose name I replaced with X, but before I do that, I'll give one more hint. Her father is an Osaka-born mathematician with a namesake fixed-point theorem used in economics to prove the existence of both Nash equilibria in game theory and general equilibria in the Arrow dubrou mckenzie model. So Osaka implies that the person would be Japanese and like an artist. I mean, Yoko Ono, Yuka Honda. Um. I should be able to get here from the economics thing. I took a class on general equilibrium theory mm-hmm. from a guy that studied under Kenneth Arrow. But I cannot think of a Japanese sounding name that fits with that. I mean, it's all set theory. Huh. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to get there from that angle. If we come up with a reasonable guess, it might strike my, might mm-hmm. fire that up. But What was the time span that this person was, I guess, active and culturally relevant? So, I mean, the, the dates that I mentioned in the, from the, in the excerpt were 2006, 2012, 2018. And she makes, like, trash culture? The first sentence begins for periodically harsh reviews. Reviews, okay. Man. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I don't read a lot of book reviews. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I mean, Ono's not going to be mm-hmm. it, but... Uh. I think, well, I mean, Yoko Ono's father was a Japanese aristocrat, like, a, you know, bourgeois sort of yeah. learned society. It's not her. The yeah, she's not ready. Critic, Yoko she's Ono. She's not famous, yeah. I don't really have anything. I don't have anything. And we probably, if we do put out some good guesses, we may just make it easier for Adam if he doesn't know it. Although, yeah, it doesn't seem like he's got an okay. idea on this. So maybe we just pass it over to him and see what he can do. Okay, yeah, pass. All right, you want to just guess a Japanese-sounding name? That's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Smith! Some people would call it yeah. Some people would call it offensive. But okay. <laughs> Say when there's no penalty for guessing, always guess. But um, okay. all right, uh, Adam. I don't know this reviewer at all, and the fixed point theorem is embarrassing because I just certainly should know it. But for some reason, the only thing that's kind of like bubbling up is like Ito, Ito maybe, and that's all I've kind of got. So that's my guess, but I don't know. All right. So the theorem is a generalization of Brouwer's fixed point theorem, but it's also it's known by the name of the man who came up with it. So, you know, for people who are mathematically oriented, he's the famous member of the family. For those who are culturally oriented, they might remember, for instance, an entire episode of Sex in the City revolving around Carrie getting a negative review from the New York Times feared head book reviewer Michiko Kakutani. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh. I'm too dumb on both sides of, of literary and mathematics to get. <laughs> All right, next one going to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. So 
What dog breed, named for a city in the Flemish region of Belgium, includes among its real and fictional members Canine Killer, who won a medal for stopping poachers in South Africa, Cairo, the only non-human member of SEAL Team 6 when it took down Osama bin Laden, Bear from the TV show Person of Interest, Daryl Dixon's dog on the TV show The Walking Dead, and several well-trained attack dogs owned by Halle Berry's character in John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. In case it wasn't clear, those first two are real dogs. The other three are from works of fiction, although they were portrayed by real dogs. So the only thing that comes to mind that has some sort of connection to Belgium would be the Rhodesian Ridgeback. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a big dog. But that's um, not. No, that doesn't make. Uh, that doesn't make sense because that's Cecil Rhodes. That's not really. What about like a Rottweiler? Yeah, I think that's not German Shepherd something i mean they're from flanders or something right from uh yeah which is belgium slash netherlands kind of low countries these cultural references uh aren't ringing any bells i don't think Um, i mean yeah it's got to be a big it's got to be a big dog mm -hmm, yeah so yeah doberman i think is named after a person Hmm. There's like some weird, there's like an often pincher, and but I mean, those are all German sounding. And it's got, it's kind of, I kind of feel like it's got to be something that looks recognizably. Yeah, which I mean, a Rhodesian Ridgeback does, hence the name. I mean, uh, it's maybe used. Hmm. Like what other big dog? There's Great Pyrenees, there's Great Danes, there's Bernese oh, yeah. Mountain Dogs. No mountain. Yeah, couldn't do a mountain. But who's that action hero from Belgium, from Brussels? Van Damme. Yeah. Does he have a dog or something, or is he associated with any kind of... I don't think... You mean, like, I don't think there's a breed named after him or anything. I don't know if... uh, hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I feel like uh, German Shepherd or Rottweiler is kind of like what I would picture as... Yeah, but those are both definitely German. Oh, okay. Not Flemish. Well, then maybe the Ridgeback thing. Yeah, be. I mean, I don't have anything better, and it popped into mind immediately, and we've already seen a couple of those be right. So yeah, and that was kind of what I was picturing when the question was read, like something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, All let's right. do it. Rhodesian right. Ridgeback. Rhodesian Ridgeback. Yeah. Okay, Patty. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a Belgian dog. I'm. It's not a big dog, but I'm gonna guess Brussels Griffon. Yeah. I'm not sure what that's. Maybe a little. Um, that's a little oh. dog though. But. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. It's really, a Belgian dog. Yeah. 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 That totally would have. But yeah, the city. Uh, so the city uh, in the Flemish region is generally known now as Mechelen. But like most things in that most cities in that part of the world, it has both a Flemish and a French name. The French name is Malina, and the adjective form of Malina. That would give you, yeah, the Belgian Malinois or Malinois. Yeah, I never heard of that dog. All right. So next one goes to uh, Patty and Adam trying to steal from Darren. This question crosses a few different domains. The legendary singer-songwriter-actor Paul Williams, who I'm a huge fan of, contributed the amazing song Touch to what 2013 album? This album's name was inspired by a volatile form of storage associated with integrated circuit chips and MOS transistors, typically used to retain working data and machine code. I'll give you one more hint. At the 2014 Grammy Award ceremony, Paul Williams accepted the Album of the Year Grammy for this album on behalf of its main credited artists. Uh huh. I feel like this is like. Am I answering this? Uh, Patty and Adam together. Yes. Okay. 
Okay. I feel like this is like a, is this random access, some memories or something by Daft Punk? Does that seem sound like it hits some of these things, you know? Uh, are we asking for the song or the album or the artist? Album title. Okay. So what album was Daft Punk song Get Lucky on? I think that might be it. I'm not sure, but that's kind of what's bringing to mind. And what was your guess again? Random access memory. Okay. Yeah, let's lock that in. All right. So what are you locking in? Random access memory. You're locking in random access memory? Okay. Darren? Uh, so I believe it's actually random access memories. Oh, I said, I said that. Oh. I don't know how lenient Yogesh is feeling. Yeah, third straight time you said the correct answer right in your first sentence and then moved away from it. Yeah, that was like, on me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I gotta be more assertive or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course he had to accept it on behalf of them because the artists do not actually speak in public or show their faces in public. They are Daft Punk, and the album is Random Access Memories. All right, so next question goes to Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. 12 years after their biggest hit, what band made a surprise comeback by winning the 1997 Eurovision Song Contest on behalf of the UK with the song Love Shine a Light? In the US, they are considered a one-hit wonder and were perhaps inappropriately frequently mentioned in 2005 on MSNBC and other news outlets in reference to events completely unrelated to music. Okay, I know this, actually. Okay. It's Katrina and the Waves. Their 1985 hit was Walking on Sunshine, uh, and then it would have been very tasteless to refer to them in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina was swamping the Gulf Coast with waves. So it's got to be that. Okay. So yeah, Katrina and the Waves. All right, yeah. So your uh, logic is exactly right. Uh, Keith Olbermann on Countdown, I think, was one of the main users of that bit of wordplay. So now the next one goes to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. It doesn't take a leap of understanding to figure out why male dogs have on average one more bone in their body than female dogs of the same type. So what scientific name from the Latin for stick or staff designates that so-called penis bone found in male dogs and also in most non-human primates and males? A study by Matilda Brindle and Christopher Opie published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B in 2016 used Markov chain Monte Carlo methods implemented in a Bayesian phylogenetic framework, that's a direct quote from the abstract, to argue that humans no longer have this bone due to two factors, the rise of monogamy in our evolutionary history, which eliminates what's called post-copulatory sexual selection, basically males pushing other males off of the female in order to mate with her, uh, and, and the fact that humans aren't a prolonged intromission species. In other words, unlike dogs, we're not a species in which sexual intercourse takes longer than three minutes. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I might be doing it wrong. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so Darren and Adam first, then to Patty, just what is the name of that quote-unquote penis bone found in many non-human mammals? Can you repeat the first sentence? All right, it doesn't take a leap of understanding to figure out why male dogs have on average one more bone in their body than female dogs of the same type. And then, yeah, what's the scientific name from the Latin for stick or staff for that so-called penis bone? So I feel like the word leap or leap of understanding has to be a clue here because that's like uh -huh. an phrasing. Huh, yeah. Baton is, I'm thinking of Baton Rouge being yeah. a stick. Yeah. Like a bayonet or something kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I know in Spanish, like a staff or a stick is a palo, uh -huh. but that can also be used kind of as a fence. So maybe that's not it. Nothing is really ringing any bells of... 
any kind. No, of... is there anything relating to leap? Hmm. What about what do you if you're doing like a pole vaulting? <laughs> <laughs> then it's uh, just a pole, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess. Javelin. I mean, that's a stick for going the track and field route. Stick jumping, jumping stick. Hello, pal. Uh, do you know how to spell the Spanish thing there? It's just, it's like Palo Alto is like Paul oh. stick, basically. Um, P-A-L-O. But, I mean, the baton, would I'd buy that too. Yeah, boy, we, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, your, your initial instincts have been pretty good so far, so maybe let's go with your... Okay, sure. So what are you going with? Bat- baton. Baton. Yeah, baton. Baton. All right, that's that's not a bad guess, Patty. Oh, I have no idea. I'm just gonna take their other guess then and go for Paulo. So um, I think you might have been on the right Latin route, and you were probably right to look at the leap because a few episodes ago, uh, I think Jason Myrowitz, there was a question that mentioned quantum leap, and he guessed bacula. That was not the correct answer in that case, but it is actually I think the Latin plural for the word for stick or staff. So if you had more than one, which animals generally don't, they would be called bacula. Otherwise singular would be baculum. Baculum. Huh. Is that his real name? Scott Bacula's real name? (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. It's funny, I almost went the quantum leap route because of that, and then I was like, no, he's already done that, so <laughs> I outthought myself, but I should have at least said it. Right, yeah, in that case, that question went in a different direction, but yeah, this one, yeah. Uh, slight Easter egg for <laughs> listeners of previous episodes. All right, next one goes to Patty and Adam trying to steal from Darren. So what verb have I redacted from this opening paragraph of a 2016 deadline article? So this is kind of half a vocabulary question. Well, here's something you don't see often during Q&As with actors promoting their new movies. Tom Hanks, star of Clint Eastwood's excellent new drama Sully, stopped his own Q&A at the Telluride Film Festival this morning to blank lavish praise on someone else's movie. The unexpected plug for La La Land was sure to upset Warner Brothers, distributor of Sully, Hanks quipped in his inimitable joking manner. So again, I took one word out of that and now I'll note that that word, which was used as a verb in that sentence, can also be used as a noun to refer to a data tree that is partially ordered such that the highest or lowest element is always at the root, which allows it to function as a priority queue. And the soft type of that data structure is invented by the Princeton computer scientist Bernard Chazelle, whose son Damien Chazelle was the director of the movie Tom Hanks was talking about, La La Land. Oh, amazing connection there. <laughs> so so he he blanked praise. Is that or yeah? What? So he can gave it. That, he, can you give that stopped, phrase again? He stopped his own Q and A at the Telluride yeah. Film Festival this morning to blank lavish praise on someone else's movie. Dull. Uh, so a, like a heap would kind of make sense. But is there a soft heap? I've never heard of like this uh, data ordering thing. What are some other maybe verbs to shower? shower? To put upon to. Hmm. You got to start at one thing, and then it can be used as a priority ordering. Uh, so it must be kind of like a, and it's got like a tree structure, so it must just be things that come off of like a main stem or something, but that doesn't so really seem to. A layer? Sprinkle? Yeah, I don't know. Shower sounds cl- like 
we're going in the right direction or something. Um, I don't know. What's maybe some other words for like a big pile of something? Pile? A mound, yeah. Ma- now you wouldn't mound lavish praise on somebody though. What about pile? Pile? That- oh, well, like with data stuff, don't like compiling, but. Hey, compile things. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't uh, know. What about like a branch? No, I was thinking branch. Well, I don't know. I feel like I'm taking <laughs> a lot of time. Yeah. The two I think that I'm most drawn to are either heap or pile, but because um, I feel like it's got to have both like a verb and a noun. A yeah. Bit. Yeah. The shower fits that, but not in that. Not I don't think in that context though. Yeah. Stack. Oh, stack. That's stack? gotta be it. Okay. Soft stack, maybe. It sounds okay. Like uh, there's that website, Stack Overflow, right? Yeah. Okay. I feel like Stack has got to be. Okay. All right. You want to lock Stack? Sure. Let's lock it. All right. So I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Darren. Oh no. Yeah. So I was debating between heap and stack. Uh, oh, no. But but a heap is not generally ordered. It's just like unallocated memory. So I'm pretty sure you guys are right with stack. But in the interest of game theory, I will say heap in case that's not correct. Yeah, so I, I'd said it was partially ordered, basically. Like each specific branch may not be completely ordered, but it's always going to have, depending on whether it's inverted or not, the highest or lowest at the root. And yeah, uh, Adam, you need to learn to trust your initial instincts. It's uh, oh, crazy. Yeah. This is weird yeah oh, no. <laughs> it's like i'm in a tom stoppard play <laughs> yeah he has the true cosmon coin <laughs> so annoying all right this next one i'm just gonna just, just gonna was bad. <laughs> okay so the last question of this round before we get to the super hard round is going to go to darren and patty first trying to steal from adam okay. even though he largely outshone his reference group the fact that the unintended consequences of his actions put a strain on and eventually destroyed the hedge fund long-term capital management, suggests that economist Robert C. Merton was not as good a role model as his father Robert K. Merton, the massively influential sociologist who coined such now-common terms as reference group, law of unintended consequences, strain, as in strain theory, and role model. However, the younger Merton did, unlike his father, pick up a Nobel Prize, which was given to him for his contribution to the Black-Scholes formula, used primarily to calculate the price of the European style of which financial derivatives? Oh. I don't know. European style versus, so, I mean. Is there any sort of like financial instrument or measurement or something that doesn't exist in, say, the United States? Like the euro dollar, I don't know. Yeah, but derivatives are like things that are based on the price of it. They're like option, like stock up, or not options, but like. Mm-hmm. just options that you can trade to buy and sell futures <sighs> maybe it's just futures european style futures yeah that kind of rings okay. a bell better that i don't think like options is too generic yeah yeah that's i mean i ugh, i should be able to think of a lot more derivatives but i mean those are kind of the ones that you traditionally hear about because okay. people will buy futures to hedge against price changes and stuff mm-hmm. so i don't know that's my best guess all right well locking in at futures well i think futures all right adam mm-hmm. no but it's options 
were the right ones but you moved away from them yeah it's a much more complicated pricing structure so <laughs> more worthy of a nobel prize yeah yeah that makes sense All right yeah these are put or call options european styles is one of the styles of them that's more precise all right at the end of this second main round these scores are now patty 10.0 darren 23.3 adam 12.0 okay i'll recheck those but yeah there were potentials for lots of big swings again with just coin flips yeah there's going to be even bigger swings in this last round because questions are now worth six points as a steal five points as a specialist and if a bonus happens to pop up it'll be worth three points and we'll start with one going to darren and adam trying to steal from patty the international airport in dakar was renamed in 1996 to honor what towering literary figure and co-founder of the negritude movement who served as senegal's first president from 1960 to 1980. That's it, huh? <laughs> um, boy, I would have gotten to Senegal without you telling me, but that's, that's about it. Do, um, do you say towering author? Yeah, literary figure, author, yeah. And also their first president? Yep. Oh, wow. So maybe a francophone uh, type of thing? Yeah. Uh, oh, is that what the tower you're thinking? Like Eiffel Tower? Or you? No, I just think they uh, speak Well, French. yeah, I mean Senegal. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It can't be like Franz Fanon or Saint Exupery or <laughs> those don't yeah, sound. It's not Camus. Right. Those are like more like Algerian anyway, right? Or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it's got to be somebody, I would think. Who's actually native African to descent. Yeah. yeah. But I wonder if towering is like, I wonder if they share a name with like a basketball player or something. Oh. If it's like Matumbo or uh-huh. Elijah Wan or. Um, who's the Stifle Tower uh, plays for the jazz? Rudy Gobert? I don't know of an author. Of That's that. not a bad guess. I mean, Maybe. that would fit the french thing too like that's a yeah. french name black french writing authors african and it's kind of a you say a literary movement yeah it was one of the founders of the literary movement called negritude okay or kind of a general cultural movement, including literary. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. I'll be interested to know what it is. <laughs> you know? oh, well, I guess I don't really have... I mean, I, we, let's definitely guess some... I mean, I, yeah. I, I like Gobert if you... Sure, yeah. yeah. I'm sure it'll be the yeah. first thing I said, which <laughs> is going to since that's how this has been going. All right, you want to lock something in? Sure, let's go with Gobert just for, like, the regret minimization. Yeah. <laughs> the super hard round things are going to be a little less guessable than before pass it over to patty so uh yeah when i used to live in dakar i used to jog to the airport and back every day and i think the airport was uh leopold sangor leopold sadar sangor this is this wasn't a hint at all he's just a towering figure because he's really important all right so five points for patty on that and the next question goes to patty and adam trying to steal from darren malcolm kerr the father of golden state warriors head coach steve kerr was assassinated by members of the Islamic Jihad Organization, or Organisation du Jihad Islamique, while serving as president of the American University in which city? So, Golden State? Father of the Golden State Warriors head coach. Oh. Who's guessing? Uh, This is going first to Patty and Adam. Okay. He was assassinated by who again, did you say? Members of the Islamic Jihad Organization. 
IJO, sometimes called OJI for Organización du Jihad Islamique. Mm-hmm. And he was the president of, of a university? Yep. What am I guessing? The city in which he was assassinated. Oh. So, I mean, that sounds French again, right? Uh, Islamic sure. organization. So a Muslim French speaking country. That's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, with an American university. Lebanon? Um, that sounds very uh, plausible. Because I know there's the, there's the American University of Beirut. So I, are we guessing the country or are we guessing the city? The city. The city. So, I mean, I guess my guess would be Beirut if we're going off of American universities. Yeah. Is French like the native language of Well, it's Lebanon? Arabic, but uh, French is like uh, one of their other like languages that they learn in school. If I was running a jihad, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't pass up Arabic unless I had a great reason for it. For it, you know, <laughs> you know, if I was gonna name my mm-hmm. Islamic movement, mm-hmm. boy, but Beirut seems like a nice place to assassinate someone. I don't know. You got a very yeah. unstable situation. Um, yeah. what about like Paris? That's kind of crazy. Yes. Uh, University president. Yeah. All right, maybe Beirut. Let's do Beirut. Yeah. yeah let's do Beirut. Keep quiet about that and pass it over to Darren. Oh, no. No, I'm like 99% sure you guys are right. (laughs) But I'm going to go ahead and just guess another capital in that neck of the woods and say Amman. Yeah, I think there is an American University of Paris. But in in 1984, when he was assassinated, the instability was definitely going on in Beirut. (laughs) Nice job. Nice. Yes. So you've almost closed a gap. You're only a couple points. Patty's only a couple points behind Darren now. But that gap will not close further on the next one because they have to work together. (laughs) So this one goes first to Darren and Patty trying to steal from Adam. It's all in the game. A 1959 number one hit for Tommy Edwards was based on a melody composed by former U.S. Vice President and Nobel Peace Prize winner Charles G. Dawes. So what 1965 song is, as far as I know, the only other U.S. number one hit to be written or co-written by a Nobel laureate? Oh, sorry, what year was it? 1965. So it's just a number one song written by a Nobel laureate. Oh, I feel like I just saw something about this. Was it like a nerdy song, like a Tom Laring or something, or Lair, where it's like a bunch of elements and it's almost a little silly? Or is it like an actual song that critics, you know, appreciate and recommend? I mean, it's... Wait, so you said it was a number one song, you guess? Yes, number one in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I've, it's pretty rare that novelty songs hit or like not, you know, not pop, yeah. popular type music, especially... I mean, in the 60s, you did have like, I think Alan Sherman was still putting stuff out. But but yeah, I wonder if it's like somebody that I mean. So there's only oh man. So I know like it's obvious that one of his specialty categories is like economics or Nobel Prize. Like yeah. So I'm wondering if it's somebody that you wouldn't think of. Oh God, I. I know I saw a factoid about that's like really and recently. Was there like a uh, economist in the 60s that was, you know, very prominent? Yeah, I'm thinking it might be like Milton Friedman, but I'm trying. Uh, I mean, that's probably as good a guess as any. You're guessing the song. The song? Oh, oh the, the song. song. The yeah. twist? I don't know. Yeah, 1965. The mashed potato. I. <laughs> I mean, 65 is, you get the Beatles, Mm -hmm. you get the Rolling Stones, 
So the only other weird one that I'll throw out is like Shel Silverstein never won a Nobel Prize, but he wrote a boy named Sue for Johnny Cash. Yeah, I don't know. Um, is there a song from the sixties that you just particularly enjoy and want to mention? <laughs> <laughs> There are lots. Um, I don't know. For lack of anything better, I'd guess a boy named Sue, just because it's. I mean, I, I do enjoy that song. Okay. Let me see yeah, so, so. Yeah, let's put in a plug for the song "A Boy Named Sue." All right, Adam. Boy, okay. It took me a long time to think of that. Uh, must be Bob it, Dylan is my oh. thinking. You're saying the oh, song came out in 1965. Yeah, I'm very surprised. Like, uh, in terms of American pop musicians who have a Nobel Prize, I thought there was one you would go to immediately. Yeah, but what did but he win it, in? I need the name of the song. Is that right? Yes. And the song came out in 1965. Yep. And it was a number one. It went to number one or something. Yep. Um, I feel like it might be like blowing in the wind. Blow wind in the wind. <laughs> yeah, Blow, not blowing in winds. <laughs> uh, that's that's gonna be my answer, I guess. I'll lock that in. But I, I can't be sure. But who knows? Right. So I've been a bit strict on titles, but yeah, I would be lenient on blow in versus blowing. That's the stupid answer given for me. As it turns out, Blowing in the Wind by Peter, Paul, and Mary was written by a Nobel laureate, and it rose to number two. On oh, the what about maybe Jimi Hendrix? No, it's too late, right? Wait, what about yeah. Rolling Stones? Like a Rolling Stone. Other number two hits are written by Bob Dylan included his own recordings of Like a Rolling Stone, <laughs> one of his best songs, and one of his worst songs, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. Well, you know, he doesn't think that. <laughs> But the song that he wrote that was a number one hit for another group, it was by the Birds. It was called Mr. Tambourine Man. Mr. Tambourine Man. I thought it was by Elton John. That's the... No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> So close. Yeah, no, you... I, I assume that everyone would just be guessing different Bob Dylan songs. It didn't occur to me that you might have difficulty getting to Dylan. I was thinking that for the super hard round that it wouldn't be that obvious. So I was thinking it's even... going to be like a non... Yeah, I don't know. What yeah, did he win the Nobel Prize in? Literature. He got literature. They have one in literature? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, it's mainly won by French people, so I thought you'd be familiar <laughs> with it. But, um, the non-obvious part was that it was a song he wrote, but did not uh, record, yeah. was not made a hit by him. Got it. Yeah, I don't think I was getting to Mr. Tambourine Man, even if I got to Dylan, so. Yeah. All right, next one goes to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. There's, the, the connection here is a little bit hidden. That's all I'm going to say about that. The role of Krista Carlisle, the seemingly wholesome high school class president who made May or may not be hiding a sinister secret was played in the excellent season one of Netflix's American Vandal by an actress who until then was mainly known for appearances on multiple Disney Channel shows. Perhaps to stand out amid its sea of teen and tween stars for purposes of professional billing, that actress shortened her first name to a single letter. What is that letter? So again, one in 26 shot, even with no knowledge. Yeah. Hmm. Out. She shortened her first name? Yep. Damn. Like, I know there's an actress named, like, Maggie Q or something, but that doesn't work because it's not the first name. Like, I, Robot? I, Clark? <laughs> <laughs> I, Carly? That was I, Brittany? <laughs> e is short for Brittany Spears. No, her name is one letter. B, CeeLo Green? Jesse J. Gosh. Jesse J. Yeah, but that, I mean, that doesn't really work, right? Because that's not really shortening her name. That's adding another J on. L. McPherson. Oh, I mean, L could be like, because that's like, I mean, what are letters that could be pronounced the same mm-hmm. as a name? Like if she shorts it from Emily to M? 
Yeah, I could see that. Hmm. I mean, what are wow. teen and tween people named? Are there... Little Nas X. <laughs> this is a girl. This is a woman, a female person. Did you specify yogish yes, gender? Female gender. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's B could be a you know like B Arthur. You got D I K. K is a woman's name. Anything? I just went through them all, and they all sound <laughs> insane. I can find you to guess. Yeah, look, we gotta guess. Let's guess a letter of some kind. Um, when do you feel J sounds cool? All right, let's do J. We have to get the whole name, or uh, no, just a letter. Okay. You're locking in J. All right, I will pass it over to Patty. Oh, I don't really have much of a guess either. Um, I'm trying to think of like a Disney kind of tween actress. I mean, I know there's L L Fanning, who I think is one of them, but and I don't know if L is short for like Elizabeth or something like that. But I'm just gonna guess L. I think L Fanning like Elle McPherson is spelled E-L-L-E not just mm-hmm. a letter oh. yeah this actress um, I mean although she had the Disney likes to kind of try people out in recurring roles on other shows that are established before giving them their own show so though she had kind of supporting roles and Sunny with a Chance at Good Luck Charlie the, the show that she starred on for three seasons between 2012 and 2015 it was in keeping with another one of our recurring themes today of dogs it was called Dog with a Blog oh Oh, that was a good show. Yeah, her name is G. Hanelius. Nope. Nope. All right. Yeah, short for Genevieve, I believe. Patty and Adam now trying to steal from Darren. Fill in the two blanks in this call, which was made by -by play-by-play radio announcer Joe Starkey on November 20th, 1982. (laughs) All right, here we go with the kickoff. Harmon will probably try to squib it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rogers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They try to do a couple of. The ball is still loose as they get it to Rogers. They get it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the blank is out on the blank. He's going to go into the end zone. He got into the end zone. I think the band is on the field. You say the Bears? Bears, yes. Like the California Bears, maybe, something like that, or is that like the... Chicago Bears. Mm, but I feel like it's a college game oh. in like Stanford or something. It's like a okay. they thought the game was over, but it wasn't over. Okay. I feel like the band is on the field. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go with that because I know nothing of sports of any kind. Yeah. So and the band is out on the field. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Even. <laughs> yeah. Even two decades later, when I was at Stanford, they're still very bitter about this moment. The play. The, yeah. The the play ended the college career of John Elway because he lost and didn't get to play. In a bowl game and yes it was the stanford band that rushed out onto the field to interfere with that so i believe yeah. that actually yeah uh, good job and i believe that actually will now put patty into first actually it puts patty in first place and adam in second place wow hey. <laughs> hey that's cool i didn't even help with that at all <laughs> It's because I didn't right. go to Stanford. That's why. That's the only reason. All right. But Darren, I'll give you a chance to recapture second place with this bonus question. So the Stanford kicker mentioned in that play, Mark Harmon, is obviously not the same person as NCIS star Mark Harmon. But that Mark Harmon, the TV star, was himself a star quarterback in the 1970s. Which university did he play for? I believe that's UCLA. Yep. He was going Hollywood very early. He was at UCLA. All right. So that puts Darren back into second place just 0.7 points behind Patty. (laughs) All right, with four questions remaining. So now Darren and Patty trying to steal from 
Adam. Okay. Oliver E. Williamson won a Nobel Prize in Economics for pioneering the study of the economics of what kind of costs, which are often partitioned into search and information costs, bargaining and decision costs, and policing and enforcement costs. In the seminal 1937 paper, The Nature of the Firm, Ronald Coase argued that these costs are the major reason that firms exist, an argument that I extended when I was teaching personality psych as a potential explanation for why humans might have evolved personalities. That last part isn't particularly helpful, so focus more on the first part. Okay. So I can think of maybe like sunk cost. Yeah. Um, can you repeat the types of costs? Please? Yeah, they're often partitioned into search and information costs, bargaining and decision costs, and policing and enforcement costs. So uh, what is the term that's going to drive me nuts? I mean, I want to say externalities, but that's not really what those are. Because externalities are just kind of like an unintended consequence of an economic action. Yeah, I don't think it's sunk cost because sunk cost is just like the fallacy that you've already spent money on something and you shouldn't Mm -hmm. throw money after it. Is there any other economics like theory or idea that has cost in the name? That's what I'm trying to think of. I mean, I think there is, and I think this is it. No, there's only sunk cost, just one. Um, Oh my gosh. I mean, the... The whole idea is basically that these types of costs are better borne by, you know, people pooling resources together. That's mm-hmm. the theory of the firm. But, ugh, I mean, the externalities is the only word I can think of that's, like, economic that would be in this ballpark, but I know it's not right. So I guess we're going to guess externalities. Yeah. <laughs> Locking in externalities? Yeah. Sure. Adam? I'm almost certain it's transaction costs, but I'm, this theory of the firm idea is really interesting. I got to think this through. <laughs> I got to write this down. But yeah, I think it's transaction costs. Yeah, I don't know if the term Sithley was around when Coase wrote his paper. I think it might have been coined a little later, but definitely Williamson, transaction cost economics is just a binary association. So yes, transaction is correct. What does that so, mean? Like in the Coase example, like if you have an externality, it doesn't matter who pays who or like where the property rights are uh, in terms of like who should have to, somebody should pay somebody else to stop doing the thing or to get rid of it or to adapt to it. And the fact that people don't or can't is explained by these okay. transaction costs like pollution. If we could all pay the polluter to stop polluting, we would and everything would be fine. But since there's all these transaction costs. Uh, yeah, and I think that's where to, I got the externalities from was the pollution. Yeah. The Coase yeah. thing. Yeah. So full disclosure, I was an econ major, but this was oh. like 20 plus years ago. So okay. clearly I don't remember a lot. Yeah. So I mean, that's also why it's important to have like one consistent organization like a firm or at the human level, a person, right? Because you can assume that they're going to be there from moment to moment. So you don't need to sort of the startup transaction cost required with making each interaction from scratch. So with one cycle, only one cycle remaining in the game, so each person gets one specialist question and two chances to steal. And there's actually only 2.8 points separating Darren in third place from Adam in first. All right. So basically the entire game is to play for with this last cycle. This is the closest bunch we've had three people this late in the game, I think, in any episode. All right. Either (laughs) all smart or all dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Making it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Porque no los dos. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
All right. So this one goes to Darren and Adam trying to steal from Patty. Two of the first three tracks on the Jonas Brothers debut album, It's About Time, were covers of songs originated by which UK pop-punk boy band founded in the early 2000s by James Bourne, Matt Willis, and Charlie Simpson. In 2014 and 2015, Bourne and Willis toured with McFly as part of a pop-punk supergroup whose name was a portmanteau of their original band names. Okay, so McFly... Fly. So you said McFly is the portmanteau? No. No. Oh. So they formed a portmanteau with the name of okay. McFly. I'm not sure that's going to help me, but so. Uh, oh, 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 BB Mac. Huh? They did back here. Or, uh, was it this? Um, oh, boy. I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I told myself I wouldn't sing. No. Um, I feel like that is got to be it. So what's the, so BB Mac is the portmanteau. No, I think that's the band. I think McFly... Oh, so the portmanteau would be like BB McFly or something? Um, or Yogesh, you're saying McFly is the name of the new band? McFly no. is the portmanteau? Yeah, McFly was another pop punk group popular around the same time. So they uh, kind of find when touring. So maybe BB Mac is the portmanteau and there's a band that's BB-related somehow. Or maybe they're just called BB. There might be something Mac, maybe Fleetwood Mac or something. But I would think the Mac would come from McFly. Yeah, shoot. And it's a boy band from when, did you say, Yogesh? Founded in the early 2000s. Boy, early 2000s. That's a good time to be a boy band. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know any British ones, though. And they're British with three members? Yep. Like, okay, well, no, like, Take That was earlier than that, and they weren't very, like, who's punk? Oh, punk. pop punk. Oh, right, pop punk. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that aspect of it. But a boy band, pop punk. Oh, that's... I can name a lot of pop punk acts, and none of them are British. And yeah. be a boy no. band. Mm-hmm. With three members, did you say? Was that specified? Yeah, three original oh. members. Yeah. Uh, like Bloodhound Gang is not British. No, <laughs> not really. Not punk either. Yeah. Two Nor boys. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I think you had to be on the right track with that BB Mac thing. I, That's I, like a one-hit wonder type of situation and not really punk at all. Okay. Very yeah. poppy. Yeah, um, well, pop punk is generally more you know i would never think of it as punk it's like sorry sorry if i offended anybody (laughs) it's a mindset (laughs) sure man okay early 2000s put yourself in that time period what is on the radio blink 182 kind of stuff yeah some 41 yeah they're canadian or i don't know if they're canadian but the one dude married avril lavigne eve six eve six is not they're not that's not a bad one. It's not really British, is it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they were American, but I could be ben, wrong. Ben Folds 5 is a trio, but not British? No. Punk? Mm, that is rough. Yeah. Anything? A boy band. Uh, I think you're going to have a better guess at this than me. I feel like if it's BB Mac, then I'm going to be uh, disappointed. So I'm just going to, I feel like I got to go with that somehow. Yeah. No, I only know that one song. All right. What are you like? BB Mac. All right. So Patty has been waiting very patiently. So I will pass <laughs> Actually, it. Actually, I don't know. Um, So I know the song that they covered was the year 3000. I believe the band was Busted. Is that what you're locking in? Yes. All right, so they toured in 2014 and 2015 as Muck Busted because of the band. <laughs> nice one. I have never, never heard, heard of that band. I only no. know of them from the Jonas Brothers cover, so. Okay. <laughs> 
Huh. All right. So two of their first three songs were both covers of Busted. So that puts Patty now in the lead with two questions remaining. And the first of those two will go to Patty and Adam trying to steal from Derek. So in a previous episode, I think hasn't been released yet, but will be released before this one, we discussed the five brilliant daughters of George Boole, the formulator of Boolean algebra, which through its 20th century discovery by the father of information theory, Claude Shannon, became the basis for all modern digital and computing technology. Less well-known than that is a 1901 letter by Boole's wife, Mary, later published as Indian Thought and Western Science in the 19th Century, in which she discusses how her husband and others in his social circles like Charles Babbage and Augustus de Morgan were able to pioneer the propositional logic that today underlies modern computers because of what she terms the, quote, intense Hinduizing end quote, of their thought. She also states that the vector for this influence of Hindu philosophy on Western mathematics and science was what uncle of hers, her father's brother, who spent most of his adult life on the Indian subcontinent and whose name is often associated with it to this day. So are we thinking of an Indian mathematician or whose name is associated with i did not say that they were indian or that they were a mathematician oh i was not paying attention to it at all then but it is associated with the subcontinent that's right yes so he spent most of his adult life on the indian subcontinent and his name is often associated with the indian subcontinent to this day Wow. <laughs> that makes it sound like like Rudyard Kipling or something. Yeah, or something He's not, like I don't that. think of him as being mathematical. Uh, no. Kipling? Uh, yeah, I don't think of him as being a, also, nor as being a, like a vector of Hindu thought. <laughs> Were there wow. any other famous people that hung out a lot in India? Like John Stuart Mill type of thing or something, maybe? Like these British types? But a vector of Hindu thought. Into muting somehow. Yeah. Are there any ideas in, in Hinduism that are like overarching? Uh, hmm. And how is this mapping into like these true false? Yeah. Things? Like let's say like reincarnation is that something that's involved in computing at all or anything like that? Hmm. I'm not seeing how that works. This is really difficult. Wow. <laughs> Why would... So who wrote this letter, did you say? Is wife Mary of... George Bull. And it was... I forget who it was addressed to, but it was eventually published as basically like an open letter. So she attributes the influence of this Indian thought or Hindu thought to the connection, basically. Like she would basically be the link between her uncle and yeah. her husband and the other intellectuals yeah, at that time. I see. The and question is, what was the name of her uncle? And you said it's her father's brother? Yes. So maybe has the same name as her maiden name, Mary. That's a reasonable inference. Yeah. There's like, uh, there's a lot of like women invo- influential in early computing, like Ada Lovelace and stuff. Like Babbage is an early computer person. I mentioned okay. Babbage's question. What's that? Oh, I you mentioned, mentioned yeah. yeah. Well, the first thing you said was Rudyard Kipling. And maybe we should keep with the theme of going with that first guess. Yeah, right. Like, I can't think of any other name that would be like associated with the yeah. continent who, this has got to be a British person, right? With a name like Mary, 
you know. I mean, and Yogesh yeah. did quickly point out that they're not necessarily Indian. Yeah. Had yeah. I been, had they been Indian, I would feel like he wouldn't have pointed that out. Yeah. Or do you think? Uh, do we know of anyone who's like really into um, Indian or Hindu thought? Is it a novelist uh, Passage India Forrester or, or something? Maybe? Isn't there like that Pema Chodin lady? But she's more it was modern. Early, yeah, really, yeah. really. I'm feeling Kipling. I don't know. Roger Kipling. I got this weird vibe off of it. Yeah. Do it. Lock it That's in. That's so crazy. Yeah, let's lock it in. Roger Kipling. Right, locking in Kipling, and I'll keep yeah. quiet. Pass it to Darren. Can you quickly repeat the question? <laughs> I don't Sorry. know if I can sleep, but I'll try. Your questions right. are long, Yogesh. They need to be repeated sometimes. Yeah, no, that's why I, I had my note. I said, you know, to keep a yeah. pen and paper. Yeah, it. But yeah, no, that's fine. There's only one more question after this, so okay. it's fine. All right. In a previous episode, we discussed the five brilliant daughters of George Boole. Less well-known is a 1901 letter by his wife, Mary, in which she discusses how her husband and others in his social circle, like Charles Babbage and Augustus de Morgan, were able to pioneer this propositional logic because of what she terms the intense Hinduizing of their thought. She also states that the vector for this influence of Hindu philosophy on Western mathematics and science was what uncle of hers, her father's brother, who spent most of his adult life on the Indian subcontinent and whose name is often associated with it to this day. It being the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get there from the computing angle. Yeah, I like the, I mean, I think Kipling's a good guess, and I will go with the other one referenced, E.M. Forster, because he did write a passage to India. I'm not really sure how much time he spent on the subcontinent, but that kind of still has a modern association, you know, if you're talking trivia world. But yeah, I think Kipling's a better guess, but I'll go with Forster. All right. Um, yeah, I see kind of the logic with all of that. I think all of you maybe could have benefited from taking the, the question a little bit more literally. So yeah, I say Indian subcontinent, that includes like the whole area uh, on Bangladesh, Nepal. And if you look at it, if you just kind of look at the map of it, certain kind of names are going to be on that map. Uh, not many British ones are remaining, though. There have been a kind of a process of de-anglicizing a bunch of names. Uh. One British geographical name that's still there, will be on any map of the Indian subcontinent, is Mount Everest, which was named for uh, yeah. the, the surveyor general of the Indian subcontinent, George Everest, who was the uncle of Mary Everest Bull. Huh. Wow. No. Okay, no, I was not going to get there. No, that's a great question. Yeah. That's wild. Hi, this is Future Yogesh popping in to note that although the mountain is Mount Everest, the man's surname was pronounced Everest. Okay, and now the very last question will go first to Darren and Patty and then to Adam. And this one you might want to write down. Nah. Okay. Fair warning. I'm going to remember it. Remember it. 90,108, 4,092,304 is an alternative representation of the first line of the chorus of a song written and popularized in the 1990s by which artist? So the only other song I can think of from the 90s would be the Rent song, 525,600 minutes, but I'm not. Yeah. It has to be an artist, so. Sorry, what was the second number? Is four million ninety two thousand three hundred four three hundred four. Mm-hmm. When did that song five hundred five? Because I would. That was in the nineties, but I mean that's. 000. I don't know. I mean it was performed by the cast of Rent. Like I don't think it would be a person. No, like, but there Jonathan, was like that. Percolator Jonathan Larson song. wrote the musical, but I don't think you said written and performed, right, Yogesh? Yep. 
Sorry, I said written and popularized. Oh. Is it by an artist or is it a band? So the same person who wrote it also popularized it as an artist. Okay. Mm. So two different numbers. What do they have in common? Well, 90108 could be a zip code. It also kind of looks like it's a square of something. Sorry, I gotta move for a second. 90. Yeah, it was 92,304. Oh, but the first one was... 90,108. Ah, got it. Okay, 90. From the 90s. What artist? What song? I mean, Jay-Z had 99 problems. Right. But I don't know how you would get to those from there. Right. I don't know. I mean, I think your rent guess is as good as any, but I also think that that's not... That's not an artist that's saying it. Right. Huh. 90s. Yeah, it. I think there's some sort of math involved, but I'm trying to. Th- do you know any pop songs of the 90s that had like numbers in them? <sighs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I. I. Like it's almost got to be a a song that asks a question. Like the title is a question of some kind. Or. Okay. Or oh, what about oh, Little Kim? How many legs? <laughs> I mean, sure. I don't. I don't. Those are very specific and high high numbers, but <laughs> we have different tootsie pop. Apparently, I don't know. The one I saw, the owl just bites it after three. <laughs> think, so. Yeah, I don't know. You want to go with that? I, uh, I think we should no, put no, ourselves out of our misery. Yeah, those numbers are too high, but I kind of just want to mention Lil Kim. Sure. So can we Shut can up. we do how yeah. many licks? Yeah, let's lock that in. Who cares? <laughs> I don't you're think we're getting in, it. You're locking in Little Kim? Well, is it the artist or the song artist. that we're... The artist, the artist slash, yeah. Okay, Lil' Kim. Yeah, as I said, this is, well, the last question of the game, um, possibly the hardest, although some people whose minds are, are set up in a certain way might have gotten it right away, but um, I'll pass it over to Adam. I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think it's got to be something like, how many seconds has it been in my life, or... No, um, minutes, how many minutes... I feel like somehow Vanessa Carlton keeps coming to mind, uh, but I don't know. Let me go with um, Mariah. You just want the artist? Yep. Let me go with Mariah Carey just as like an overall. It covers a lot of 90s bases. So I'm just going to take a scattered shotgun approach in that direction and just go with Mariah Carey there. All right. Yeah. So this, you know, as the last question, it's going to take a little bit more kind of puzzling out than others. And I did tell you up front, it would help to write it down to kind mm-hmm. of focus what you know what the the characters represent so last time i said you you didn't um think literally enough this time you maybe thought a little too oh. literally enough. i don't want to wait for oh nine two three oh four oh nine nine oh nine two three oh four yeah i don't want to wait for our lives oh, oh. oh my god <laughs> Wait, so is that how long your life is? No, it's the song. I don't want to wait for Yeah, it's an all a coal. Yeah, but what is the what are these numbers coming from? Because if you, you say, say them, if you say them fast enough, it oh. sounds like a song. Nine oh one oh eight. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Yo, yes. Did you come up with that yourself? No, I did not. Okay. Good. I feel better about you. Okay. But yeah, you you answered. 
just to digits and then replace instead of zero say oh and suddenly you'll end up with something very close to a song first line of a chorus popularized written produced and performed in the 90s by paula cole all right so i believe then nothing changed over the last two questions so our final scores are patty 32.0 darren 26.3 and adam 29.1 patty All right. Thank you all for participating and thank you to all listeners. And we'll close this episode by giving each of you a chance to say anything you want. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. And we'll go in reverse order of placement. So we will start with Patty. Well, thank you for having me, Yogesh. And I'm still very upset about this Paula Cole question. So that's all (laughs) I want to leave it on. All right. Since Patty didn't plug herself, I will. She's a rising star in the Portland area. Follow her stand-up comedy career. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> sure. Oh, very cool. Sure. All right. Adam? I'm absolutely going to ask the next person I see this question. And <laughs> <laughs> see what happens. Uh, thanks, Yogesh. This is great. Darren? Yeah, I have nothing to plug. I just wanted to say thanks. This has been an awesome experience. It was great meeting and playing with the two of you. And I look forward to hating the sound of my own voice on my ears very soon. <laughs> this has been Episode 8 of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thanks for listening.